Welcome to the Christian Teaching Podcast. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We are continuing our series on the idea of faith that pleases God, and this is part number two. And so in this lecture, we're going to cover verses 8 to 22 of Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to aim uh, at examining Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the the patriarchs, the men who were uh, responsible for perpetuating the Jewish line, the Hebrew genealogy. So when we come to this idea of faith that pleases God, let's go back a little bit just to review what we looked at last time. What we saw last time was that Hebrews emphasizes the superiority of Christ. Christ is superior. He was superior as the Son of God to angels and to Moses and to Joshua and to Aaron. And so all throughout the book of Hebrews, we looked at that last time, he is superior. The problem is, not really a problem, but the problem to a humanly thinking mind is that he is invisible. He's a high priest in heaven, but not on earth. So how do we live in light of who this superior Christ is? How do we live in light of the Lord Jesus Christ? So he's going to use this idea of faith to show that it is by faith that we please God. It is by living in light of what is unseen that we please God. That is what this chapter is all about. So we saw in the first lecture that in verses 1 to 7, it was Gentiles that we were dealing with. The Gentiles came to God by the same faith as the Jews did. So we looked at people like Abel and Enoch and Noah. They were not Hebrew people, but they were people that God chose, people that God looked at with favor, people who found grace in the sight of God, and it is these who came to God by faith. But now we're going to look at the Jewish line, and Jewish refers more to the religious aspect of the Hebrew people, so maybe we should just call them Hebrews just to emphasize the ethnicity. But either way, we come now to Abraham, who was the father of the Hebrew line. We also saw that faith is composed of two primary components, and we're going to see those worked out today as well. Faith is composed of what is invisible, it incorporates the unseen into my present reality, and it is also made up of what is future. We are living in light of the future so that it defines my present reality. So this idea of invisible and future was seen in verse number one. The next key verse is in verse number six, where It gives us two things that faith has to believe. So it says, faith must believe that God exists. Faith comes to God and believes that he is. And by that kind of faith, we please God. God's existence is unquestioned in our mind, essentially. And there's more. Because we believe not only that God is, but that God is a rewarder. So we believe that he is good. And we are just as sure that he is good as we are that he exists. So that's what we saw last time. And we saw these principles lived out in Abel, Enoch, and in Noah. And we saw that for Gentiles, for non-Hebrews, this faith works. So when we come to this idea of Abraham in verse number 8... Abraham is presented as being a man who had a call. So we are introduced to the first aspect of faith in these verses, 
And what we see is that there are going to be five things. The first one is that faith obeys a call to an unknown land. So we're introduced here to Abraham. So let's just read the verses together, and I'm reading from the NASB. Let's read from verses 8 to 10 just to get the idea. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien, as a stranger, in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So this is Abraham's first opportunity to display his faith in God. He was originally living in Ur of the Chaldees, but at this point, God calls him to go into Canaan, into a land that God would give him. So this is why it's called a land of promise. But let's take, let's take these verses and look at them a little bit more detail. So verse number eight, we read, By faith Abraham, when he was called, he obeyed. He obeyed. Abraham received a call to a place he had no clue what it was like. So he went out not knowing where he was going. That's a really interesting aspect of faith because it means that he obeyed not based on the details, but based on the call. The fact that he was called by God was good enough for him to obey. He obeyed immediately before he understood the details of where he was going or what he was doing. So he went out to a place that he was to receive for an inheritance, but he had no idea what that looked like or what the end result was going to be. So we see this principle that faith responds to the call of God, not the full unfolding of God's purposes. Let's remember that. When God calls us, is it good enough? Is it good enough for us to obey because God is commanding us? Or do we need God to give us a reason? Now, we're going to see that Abraham's life, Abraham's experience, proves that it is a beneficial thing to obey even when God doesn't tell us why. We must obey because it is coming from God. And this is the only way that the Christian life can be lived so that when God does reveal why, and he usually does, at some point, whether in this life or in the next, if God does reveal why we are obeying, then it will come to us with greater fullness and we will appreciate it that much more. But the point here is that we obey when we are called, not when we receive all of the details about how we are to obey. In verse number nine, we find where Abraham dwelt. So he obeyed the call. He's setting out on this life that he really didn't know what to expect. And he's setting out on this journey that was entirely dependent on the leading of God step by step. He didn't know what the next move was. He just obeyed step by step. So he finally makes it to Canaan. And what do we read? It says, by faith he lived, in verse number nine, as an alien, as a stranger in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. Well, that's interesting. It's promised to him, but it's still foreign. So that's an interesting kind of contrast right there. It's promised, but it's foreign. So he was dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. He comes to Canaan, the land that God promised him, and yet it wasn't 
his yet. So get this idea. He didn't receive the promise yet, but he dwelled in the land because not that he understood fully what it meant that it was his, but because God promised it to him. So he dwelt there as an alien, as a stranger. And this was proved in the fact that he dwelt in tents with his sons. So here we have this idea that faith responds to the promises of God. It doesn't respond when the promises are fulfilled. It responds when God gives the promises, not after we see them unfold. So Abraham's living in this land that would be his, but he didn't experience that yet, yet he believed it. So that's what faith does. Faith lives in light of the promise of God, and yet it is content to live waiting for that to be fulfilled in God's timing. So he lived as a stranger in tents. One thing we should notice here in verse number nine is that it was with Isaac and Jacob that he dwelt with Isaac and Jacob. So here's the idea that as Abraham has these promises from God, these promises are going to be communicated and enjoyed throughout multiple generations. This is going to be key in the book of Genesis as you read it. You will notice that each man, each patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has a personal experience where God actually communicates the covenant to them personally. So each of these individuals will be bearing the standard, will be carrying the covenant for God from their father Abraham as individual representatives of the chosen people. So that's why it's significant that he was dwelling in these tents along with Isaac and Jacob, because they were part of that journey of faith where God was giving them the covenant, yet not in full as of yet. So they were heirs. It was still coming. Inheritance has a future aspect to it. So they were heirs of the same promise. So where did Abraham look? This is really the gist of the thing. This is the point. So in verse number 10, it continues. So we found that Abraham left somewhere. Abraham left his home country. Then Abraham dwelled, Abraham sojourned in the land of Canaan, even though he wasn't really at home there. He was dwelling in tents. He didn't really have a permanent stay there. Why was he living? Was he living just so he could be the means of God's covenant? Was he just living so that he could benefit generations after him? So was his life purposeless in itself? Well, no, because verse number 10 says he was looking for something greater than an earthly promise. He was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So Abraham's only purpose wasn't to be there for the future of Israel. Abraham's only purpose was not simply to bear children so that they could possess the land long after he died. No, no. God deals with individuals based on their faith. God deals with persons based on their faith. So every person who comes to God by faith will receive those personal benefits in their soul for their faith. Faith never rejects the person who has it. Faith always has a direct benefit. So this is Abraham's experience. He was looking not for the promised land, but he was looking for a city. This idea of where citizenship resides, a city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. And so there we find this isn't an expression that deals with creation per se. This is an expression that shows where God dwells, 
the place that God has designed ultimately for his people is heaven. And so these people looked for a city, and we're going to discover that that is actually a heavenly city. That is the place where God himself dwells. So let's remember this. Let's remember this, and we're going to come back to this. When you are called to trust God based on a promise that has not yet been fulfilled, what is your purpose in the meantime before that promise is fulfilled? This is a legitimate question, because Each of us will have to face these times of patience where we're simply waiting for God to fulfill his promise. What are we waiting for? Is it vain to wait? Is it pointless to wait? Is there no purpose in the meantime? Well, Abraham's experience shows us this principle. Though we may have a purpose that extends beyond our life, yet our life is not meaningless in and of itself because God himself desires to be the portion, the inheritance of every believer. Your purpose in living life is not simply to be a means for God's glory, though it is that, and it will always be that, and we should never forget that. But your Christian life is not simply a means to an end. Your Christian life is an experience. Your Christian life is an entity in which you are gradually growing in the knowledge and joy of God. That is the purpose. So don't think that time is wasted when you don't see the purposes of God fulfilled as of yet. Your time is not wasted because you're looking for something higher than a mere promise. You're looking for something higher than the here and now or even your legacy that you will leave beyond life. You are looking for the very place that God dwells. And so that is unshakable and that is purpose that will never end. So we find that Abraham responded to a call, even though it was to an unknown land. It was to a place he didn't yet understand the depth of. Faith does something else, though. So we've seen that faith obeys a call. And I ask you the question, are we willing to respond to the call of God when it comes? Not when we receive the details, but when the call of God comes to obey. That's what faith does. Faith does a second thing, though, and this is also illustrated in Abraham's life. Faith trusted a promise for an unlikely son, and this we see in verses 11 to 12. So let's just read it to get the idea and flow of thought. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. One thing we should probably do is just put quotation marks around this main section here, because that's actually a quotation of the exact promise God gave to Abraham, that his descendants would be as the stars of heaven and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Interesting couple of questions that come to my mind when we look at this narrative. So, we're trusting a promise of God for something that is totally impossible. This is what faith does. Faith doesn't rely on reason. It relies on revelation. This is going to be a significant point. So, how is this illustrated? Let's look at Sarah for a moment. Sarah herself, that's actually an interesting commentary on the Genesis narrative because Sarah has always been sort of the one that drags down the situation in a way. She was always sort of the last person to have faith and to believe. Because 
we read in uh, the book of Genesis, for instance, you can read it, that Sarah is the one who commanded Abraham to go in unto Hagar in order to bear a son. And that didn't work out so well, and Sarah was the one who got angry at Hagar when Ishmael started causing problems, the whole bit. So Sarah's here causing problems because she wants to take the primary role in certain of these places. When it comes to the promise for Abraham to have a son by his own womb, by Sarah's own womb, uh, the son called Isaac, in Genesis 18, this is predicted, Sarah actually laughs at the idea that she could have a son. And then the angel, which is actually uh, the Lord God in human form, an anthropomorphism, in Genesis 18, responds to Sarah's laughter, even though she wasn't where they were. He responds to Sarah's laughter, and he says, no, you will bear a son. And so she stops very quickly, and she is absolutely confounded by the fact that this angel knew what she was doing, what she was thinking, even though she was nowhere near them. So this idea that Sarah herself was acting by faith is a tremendous, tremendous concept. Because in the Genesis narrative itself, we don't even read of her faith. So why is the Hebrew writer saying, by faith, Sarah received ability to conceive? This is a principle we come across in James chapter 2. Let's remember this. James chapter 2 says that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. It speaks about Abraham offering up Isaac, and because he offered up Isaac, therefore his faith was demonstrated and he was called the friend of God. So this is what's happening here. This is what's happening here. Let me just write down James chapter 2 here so you can have that as a, as a reference. So what's happening here? We have never seen that Abraham's faith is mentioned or Sarah's faith, rather, is mentioned in the Genesis narrative. But we see the action of the conception itself, and so we assume that it was by faith. We assume that it was by faith because her actions proved it, just like we saw in James chapter 2. And you can read that for yourself. So James chapter 2 says, Faith without works is dead. So, when we see the works, there must also be faith. That's the principle here. So Sarah is faithful because she actually came out on the other end of God's promises. And she considered him faithful who had promised. We know this because she actually did end up bearing a son. So when it comes to this idea of dead bodies, you see these key phrases beyond the proper time of life. Uh, and Abraham himself was as good as dead because he was almost 100 years old. So what is he saying here? Well, for Sarah, she was too old to conceive. And for Abraham, he was too old to provide the means for Sarah to conceive. What he's saying is that both of them understood this. You can read this in Romans chapter 4, actually, where it says, Abraham considered his own body to be dead, and yet being strengthened in faith, he persevered, and he did what was right, and God blessed him. So they understood that their bodies were dead, but they acted on the promise anyways. So this is where faith comes in. Even though it does what is impossible, even though it understands that God is claiming something that seems to be impossible, we obey and we let God do the rest. So let's remember this in terms of our own lives, that there will be impossible things that we have to do. 
there will be things, there will be times of obedience that seem absolutely impossible. Maybe it's getting through a trial with our head on straight. Maybe it's acting kindly towards a believer that has offended us. Maybe it is simply obeying in a hostile situation. All of these things seem impossible at the time, but because God has told us to endure, we conclude not that we will find the resources to endure on our own, but we conclude that because we can obey God, he will provide the resources at the right time. Our job is to obey. Our job is to trust his promise. God's job is to do the rest. And so that's why we obey based on faith. A couple other things to notice here is that we are not slaves to the seasons of life. It says that beyond the proper time of life, Sarah conceived. Whether you are old or whether you are young, your service for God does not depend on the boundaries set by your culture. Your service for God depends on what he tells you to do. And that's the case with scripture. That's the case with prayer. Don't confine yourself to your age. Don't confine yourself to your outwardly conforming influences. Rather, define yourself by what God calls you to do. Seasons of life or circumstances of life are not barriers to service. They do not enslave us. Rather, they are opportunities for God to display that his power alone can be credited for our spiritual success. Let's take a look at this quote before we move on, that as many descendants as the stars of heaven, there's that heavenly aspect, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. So here we have a heavenly aspect, and then we also have an earthly aspect, by the seashore. Let me give you a little thing that just is by the way. When it comes to what is heavenly and what is earthly, there may be a type here from Genesis chapter 15. Let's remember that Abraham is both the father of Israel and also the father of the church in certain senses. Romans chapter 4 tells us that, yes, Abraham is the biological father of all Israelites, but he's also the father of our faith, and that's going to be significant. So there may be a hint here, even in Genesis 15, where this quotation is from, that Abraham's descendants not only include Israel as a nation, but also people who would have a heavenly calling. So there God gives him an illustration. Your descendants will be as the stars of heaven, representing the church, representing people who would come to God by faith and have a calling in heaven. But he also says that your seed, your descendants, will be innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. So the stars represent those who would have a heavenly calling, but also the sand would represent people who had a calling on earth, Israel, which would have an inheritance on earth and a physical land. So that's just by the way, it shows that Genesis is full of depth and has multiple layers of application, and we must be mindful of those things. So we have this heavenly people and this earthly people involved as well. Let's go to the next section. Point number three is that faith desired a country amidst unfulfilled hope. So this is going to be significant, and it's kind of a commentary on the kind of faith that Abraham had, the kind of faith that Abraham expressed as he journeyed in his faith. 
verses 13 to 16. Let's just read them to get the idea. All of these died in faith without receiving the promises. That's just going to be absolutely key in understanding this section. These died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So we're introduced to this idea of a country of their own. These all died in faith. They weren't so much concerned with receiving the promises on earth, but their their mind was caught up with something that was more close to their heart, something that was heavenly. So what's the idea here? These died in faith without receiving the promises in a physical sense, but there was something that they welcomed. So they didn't receive the promise, but they welcomed them. So even though the realities were not true physically, these promises were true in their hearts. And that's the idea of faith. Faith doesn't need everything to be fulfilled, everything to make sense in the present for it to serve God. What faith needs is to say, God said it, and so I believe it. And so that allows me to live with that joy and with that hope as if the promise had already come. So there's something something mysterious about this. They saw them and they welcomed them. They saw them afar off. They saw them from a distance. And it was so real to them that it was almost like they were there already because they had it as a reality in their hearts, though it was not real in their experience. Notice how radical this is. They died in faith. They died in faith without receiving the promises. Wasn't the whole point that faith will always triumph at the end, that faith will always prove itself by the time life is over and that it will all make sense when life is over? Not really. No. Faith responds not merely to what is future, not merely to what is invisible, but it responds to what is heavenly. So we understand in this life of faith that our understanding may be limited until we get to heaven. Our understanding may not be full as long as we are on this earth. Granted, God will prove himself on this earth. God will show himself to be true in our experience. But in terms of having a complete fulfillment of everything we hoped for, of everything that God promised us, we may not see this come to fruition until after we die. But that's how faith thinks. Because faith isn't looking for everything to be alright on this earth. Faith is looking beyond this earth. It's looking to a country that is of a different nature, a country where God dwells. And because our eye is so focused on God himself, having the fulfillment on this earth isn't really as important to us. So they have a country of their own. They confess that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Strangers and exiles. So strangers mean they didn't belong on earth. Exiles means the earth itself rejected them. They just really were kind of outcasts. They were a little bit strange because they didn't belong. They had a different ethnicity, as it were. Yeah, they were people, and they had maybe the same color of skin. But in terms of just what went on in their life and in their heart, they were kind of weird. They were different. 
They had a heavenly stamp upon their life. So they were strangers and exiles on earth. What was their secret? Those who say such things, notice, they confessed, they admitted that they were strangers and exiles. Nobody had to look at them and say, you're, you're kind of weird. They understood. They said, yes, I'm weird. I'm different. I have something totally different than what this world can offer. I get it. I'm willing to receive it. You might ask yourself, who would be so insane as to embrace that way of life? Those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. The things of earth no longer persuade them, but they are driven by something that has been brought near to their hearts, a country of their own. And we're going to discover that it's a heavenly country. It's something beyond what they even desire on this earth. It's a country all of their own. They're seeking, maybe we could even say a homeland. That's how the ESV puts it. They're seeking a homeland. They don't feel settled on this earth. And they're wanting a place that they can call home. You know, we're going to look at this a little bit later, just in a couple slides, but what a wonderful, wonderful thought that heaven is my home. And so we don't even have a problem with being rejected on this earth because heaven is my home. So we come to this idea in verse number 15. Okay, so we have heaven as our home. We are strangers and exiles on this earth. Let's not kid ourselves. This is going to be a very, very difficult thing to understand. This is going to be a difficult thing to embrace because it will mean that we are rejected by our peers. So here's a principle. Verse number 15 says, And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Very, very solemn verse. I wonder if there's a hint here to the Jewish borderline apostates that this letter is written to. It's almost taking an aside and saying, listen, listen, you're called to a life of faith in this new Christianity thing. But let me tell you this, that the fact that Judaism still exists means you do have an opportunity to return. And God's going to test you with that opportunity to return. So he's writing to his Jewish audience and saying, it's not all going to be easy. You're going to be tempted to go back to Judaism and you will have an opportunity if you keep thinking about it. But just remember this, that it is not worth it in light of the big picture. So here we have this solemn reality that God will test his people with opportunities to return. Or should I say that the devil will test his people with opportunities to return. The devil will test God's people, and God will use that as an opportunity to refine and to prove if that faith is really real. There's a couple illustrations of this. For instance, in Genesis chapter 13, we read that Abraham and Lot came up out of Egypt, and we remember that Abraham went with Lot and his family down to Egypt because there was a famine in the land of Canaan. And so, Abraham's in Egypt, a picture of the world, and there he is. He lies to Pharaoh about Sarah being his wife, and it's just a whole mess until he finally leaves. What happens? Well, Abraham comes, and there we have him and Lot dwelling in the same land. So they're coming out of Egypt, the place of the world. Then we have this time where Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen sort of come at a strife together, and they have to split. So Abraham says, listen, 
If you want the more luxurious land for your pastures, I will go the other direction. If you take the right, I'll take the left. Whatever you want. You take the place that you want. I'm going to give you first choice. So what does Lot choose? He chose the plains of Sodom where great wickedness dwelt. There was lush pasture in those plains, but there was also great wickedness. So even though Lot came out of Egypt... Egypt never came out of his heart, and so he went back to an Egypt-like place. He went back to Sodom, the place of the city, the place of sin, because Egypt resided deep in his heart. So Lot was thinking of the country that he came from, and he had an opportunity to return to a similar place, and it devastated him. Let's remember this, that nothing but total commitment to our heavenly calling will yield total commitment to the life of faith. If we want to return, we will. And if it is in your heart to live for this world, you will. Because the opportunity will come when you will be tested as to your true motives. I will be tested as to my true motives. And if we're constantly thinking, oh man, I wish I could be part of that world. If we're constantly thinking, wow, I miss what I used to be able to do in this world before I was a Christian. Guess what? You will be tested. And the devil will present an opportunity where he will say, you want the world? Let me give it to you. I can give it to you. No problem. And that opportunity may be scary. And we will find those tests in life. The question is, will we face the opportunity? It's not a necessity. It's an opportunity. We can say yes or no, but we must decide. We can sort of be more cautious towards this process, we can be more prepared for this trial if we have determined in our minds that heaven is our home. If we stop thinking about earth, that's the key. The mind is involved here. They were thinking about it, and that's the problem. That's why Philippians 4 says, think on these things, things that are lovely, of good report, things that are excellent. All of that is embodied in the person of Christ. If we're thinking heavenly thoughts, we won't have a problem rejecting earthly thoughts. But if our mind is betraying everything we're trying to do in our assembly, everything we are trying to do by reading our Bible, if our mind is not in the right place, then soon that will come out in our lives. And no matter the masks we put on by coming to the assembly meetings, by coming to do our daily reading plans, by coming to pray for however long we try to pray, that will only be a temporary mask until our true hearts are unveiled, when we are tested by the world, and we will have to choose, will I return, or will I stay, and commit myself? Dear believer, this opportunity will be momentous. This opportunity will be defining. You will get to choose if you want to stay. Will you choose to keep heaven as your home, or will you take that opportunity, and return to the world, and maybe discover that you were actually never saved in the first place because God had never done a true work of conversion in your heart. That's not to say Christians can't temporarily fall back into worldly habits, but it is always temporary because the work that God starts, God finishes. And so you will find that even though you may stray for a little while, you will always come back. But here what we are talking about is a full-on return to the world, where we reject everything that we understood of Christ, or thought we understood of Christ. And particularly this is to Jewish converts to Christianity, but the principle remains. 
people who completely turn their back on the gospel and on Christ to indulge in the world have their place, and they had their opportunity to return because they proved that heaven was not their home, but they really just wanted a life lived on earth, and they wanted a life lived for self. Beware, beware of the opportunity to return. So this is the crux. God has prepared a city for them. Verse number 16 says, but as it is, they desire a better country. So they realized, you know what? The world isn't even worth living for anyways, because it's physical, but they desire a better country, something that is more worth their time anyways. And that is a heavenly country. That's the key. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is wonderful, wonderful truth. And this is the key of how we live with heaven as our home. This is the key with how we survive this world with all of its temptations. As it is, they desire a better country. Ultimate desires will always be fulfilled. Heavenly desires will lead a heavenly lifestyle. Never forget that. If you want to aim for the heavenly country, if you want to aim for a lifestyle that is corresponding to your eternal destiny, if you want to live the life of God throughout your own experience, then you need to adjust your desires. Remember what James says. He says, every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust, by his own desire and enticed. Your desire, your ultimate want will always be fulfilled. It's human nature. If you really want something, you will justify yourself consciously and subconsciously to get what you want. Your goal is not to create external boundaries to keep you within a religious system, you need to change your heart. So that's why he emphasizes this idea. They desire, they desire a better country. And that is why they pursued it with all of their might. So they adjusted their desire. And so they adjusted their lifestyle. What I see here is that when a person aims for God, God becomes their defender. So these people have rejected a life on earth. They have rejected an earthly lifestyle and they have become outcasts to their very own fellow humans. But because of that, because they have found their all in God, God has no reserve in committing himself fully to them. So God is not ashamed. God is actually, if I can so use these terms for God, God is proud to have this person as his own man or woman of faith. He is proud to showcase these people as evidences of his power in their life. Remember Job? Remember the devil comes up to the sanctuary of God and and God says, consider my servant Job. What was God doing? God was committing his trust to Job. What a tremendous thing for the creator to do that to a creature of the dust. And yet, God is not ashamed to be called their God when these people live by faith. So just like God said, look at my servant Job. And, you know, it's it's a wonderful thought. Just as God said to his son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There is some limited measure and it is limited, but it's still there where we can replicate that delight that God has in his son by living the life of faith that his son lived. And we're going to see that in chapter 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. 
we can even replicate some of that pleasure that God found in his son because we reflect him and we are showing that he served his God and so we want to serve our God. So God is not ashamed to be called our God. And what does God do in return? He prepares a city for them. It's prepared. It's theirs. It's theirs as a possession. It's not going anywhere. So they are confident that God has become their defender. God is on their side. God is for them. And they realize it's not simply about God being for them in this life, but it's about God being for them in light of a life that is to come. If you read in Romans chapter 8, this will become extremely important. There is a sense in which we experience the goodness of God in this life. And in fact, we do. If you read Psalm 27, the psalmist says, I would have despaired if I didn't believe that I would have seen the goodness of God in this life. But remember that your ultimate experience of the goodness of God is in a heavenly place. And there you will see everything come to fruition before your very eyes as God unfolds why this life was the way it was. Because God prepared something for you that was ultimate. He prepared something for you that is heavenly, that is unshakable. If God prepared something for you on this earth, it would be just as unstable as this this earth is. And that's why Paul says we look for that which is unseen, not that which is seen, because that which is seen is temporal, it's fading, it's passing away, but that which is unseen is eternal. That's why you read in 2 Corinthians of how he endured so much trial, because he understood my entire life is rooted in God. Like he says in Colossians, my life is hid with Christ in God, and so we are called to set our affections on things that are above. Jesus said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so that is this idea of investing in what is heavenly, because that is unshakable. Let me give you a principle here before we move on. When it comes to desiring what is heavenly, it ultimately means we are desiring God himself. When we think of the kingdom of heaven, we're not simply thinking of a kingdom that is bright and glorious and you know, governed by angels, everything we associate with heaven. When we think of the kingdom of heaven, heaven actually stands for God. Heaven is the place where God dwells, where God rules. So the kingdom of heaven is a place under God's rule. So when we think of this country that is heavenly, we are actually thinking of a country that reflects God himself, a country where the fullness of God is displayed, a country that in fact brings us into full enjoyment of God himself. That is what faith does. Faith finds its all in God. One thing we need to understand before we move on is this. You are going to be tempted by the devil to think that because you are rejecting the things of this earth, because you are rejecting the welcome of this earth, that you are receiving less. That's not true. That's not true. By receiving what is spiritual, you actually receive more, including what is physical. You receive more in the ultimate scope of things. Think about Abraham's experience. Abraham sojourned as a stranger on this earth. What does the Lord tell us about Abraham in the coming kingdom? So Abraham has been dwelling in the heavenly country since he died. But there will be an earthly kingdom set up under Christ. And what does it say? That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will sit together in the kingdom in a coming day. 
That's tremendous. So Abraham rejected earth temporarily, and he rejected the earth in light of heaven, but there's a coming day when his body will be resurrected and when he will actually sit physically in the kingdom of Christ. So he received the best of both worlds. Because he invested in what is spiritual, God gave him ultimately both what is spiritual and what is physical. So when we invest in a life of faith, when we invest in a heavenly treasure, it just means that once we reach heaven, God is going to sum up all of his purposes on earth, and once he creates a new heaven and a new earth, it will all be ours. Isn't that tremendous? So we're actually gaining everything when we invest in spiritual realities. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that all things are yours, whether it be life or death or things to come. And he says, you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So when we invest in Christ we actually receive everything in greater measure. And so God prepares something for us. And in fact, the blessing goes beyond anything we could have imagined. If we invest in this world, we will only have this world and we will die for this world. And we will only have nothing to show for it because that which is seen currently is temporary. But if we invest in what is heavenly and unshakable, we will just wait for God to sum up his purposes on earth, and then we will have the earth also. Remember, Christ's promise is still true. The meek shall inherit the earth. And that is true even for us. Obviously in a different sense than Israel, but still. So then we have point number four. What else does faith do? And this is, this is a difficult concept to get our minds around and it's easy to exposit from scripture but it's difficult to live out in the life faith endured the trial by unrestrained commitment faith endured the trial by unrestrained commitment let's read verses 17 to 19 just to see how this was displayed in abraham's life it says by faith abraham when he was tested offered up isaac And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him, that is Isaac, back as a type. So we're seeing new layers to faith all the time. It just reaches new levels that we never even thought it could reach in this chapter. It's it's a radical thing. It's an extreme thing. So faith apparently, let's get this straight, Abraham offers up the son that God promised him. So faith apparently goes back on a promise that was already fulfilled. It goes back on a promise that God already gave so we, we think it's tremendous to live in light of promises that we haven't received yet. How much more to reject a promise we have already received? That's exactly what Abraham did when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar, or at least when he attempted to, and you can read of that in Genesis 22. So faith, faith is so confident in God, so confident in God that it is radical and extreme, So much so that even after God gave the promise, it was willing to give that promise back to God as an act of worship. That is absolutely tremendous. Absolutely tremendous. So that just teaches us that the 
only way to live a life of faith is when God himself is our greatest joy. And God, graciously and yet, it must be hard at the same time. God tests us to see if there are any legitimate things in our life, in our lives, that come between us and God. God tested Abraham to prove that Abraham was not worshipping the promise that God gave him, but that Abraham was worshipping God himself. Let's get this straight. It's not that God wants to take things from us. No, no, no. After all, God didn't even want Isaac to be burnt up on the altar. He didn't want that. He just wanted to see Abraham's heart. So God gave Isaac back to Abraham. Isaac never died. But here's the thing. God needed to test that so that God could bless Abraham fully. Let's think about this. God doesn't want to take things from us. What God is doing when he takes things from us, though, is he wants to give us a greater measure of himself, the source of all true blessing. So God can only bless us when he gives us himself, and he can only give us himself when he alone is our God, when we have all of the idols removed from our heart. He can only bless us with himself when he alone is our hope, even when we don't understand how his promises are coming true. That's what God's desire is. That's what faith does. Faith finds its ultimate reality in God, in God's being, in God's person, and it doesn't rely on what God does per se, but it relies on who God is. So Abraham was tested. But he fulfilled the test. He offered up Isaac. And he, even after he received that promise, was willing to give it back to God in an act of worship. Let me just take an aside here. Let me just take an aside here. God will call us to give up something that we thought we needed and we thought was the source of our life itself. And we may even think that we must die when God takes that thing away. Abraham was an old man, and he found his delight in his only begotten son. What would it have been for God to say, Abraham, as an act of worship to me, I need you to give up your son on the altar? What a tremendous, tremendous trial. If I was Abraham, and people have argued, and you know, I I kind of concur with them, maybe except for Job's and Paul's case, But I think that Abraham's trial was probably the hardest trial recorded in all of scripture because this was what God promised him. And Abraham probably thought that his entire life was dependent on this son that God had brought from his dead womb. And yet God says, Abraham, I am enough for you. Abraham, worship God, not your son. So... We may think that we must die when God touches that area of our lives, and we shouldn't go looking for these tests because they will be painful and severe, and only when God brings those tests upon us should we respond to them. We should not go looking for them. But when they come, when they come, we may be so desperate in thinking that God has taken away something necessary for life, but then God comes through. And he teaches us that no, that wasn't necessary for life. God was necessary for life. And the thing we thought we so needed, we actually found 
No, I, I needed God. That's something we usually can only learn by experience. But God is faithful. God is faithful, and he controls the test from beginning to end. And he will see to it that there is always the possibility of coming out on the other side. It may be in heaven, but coming out on the other side in faith, in strength, in service for him. Let me give you another principle here. Notice this solemn, touching phrase, only begotten son. That reminds us of Christ, doesn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In the end, Abraham got to keep Isaac. The touching thought is that what Abraham did not have to endure, what God preserved Abraham from enduring, and that is the death of his son, God did not keep himself from enduring that pain. God allowed Abraham to go to a certain point, but God gave Abraham Isaac back. He gave him back, but that never happened on the cross. God gave his son and he did not get him back, but he's, his son had to die. His son had to die. And that pain he spared Abraham, he did not spare himself. Let me, let me, let me give you this principle. Anything God calls you to go through, God is emotionally involved in it. I can't help but think of God looking forward to the future where in that same place Abraham offered Isaac, God would one day offer his son for the sins of the world. And I cannot help but think that, that as God looked forward to that, his, his heart was doubtless pained as he saw Abraham and the grief in Abraham's heart as he raised that knife up into the air to slay his son, And the reality is, this was only a small picture of what God would have to endure in full. This was only a small picture of what the Son of God would have to endure in full. God is emotionally involved in everything he asks us to do. He never acts uncaringly. He never acts unkindly. He never acts in harsh demands of obedience. He calls us to obey through the trial because he knows exactly how much it hurts. He calls us to obey in the trial because the Lord Jesus Christ knows exactly how much pain that is going to cause. Did you ever think of it this way though? Maybe Christ allows us to go through suffering because he knows how much it hurts and he knows that it is the only meaningful way to have that life of faith, and to have God's full blessing. Let's not look at our trials as something that Christ gives us uncaringly. Let us look at our trials as something that Christ gives us with all of the care that he can have. Because as our great high priest, as we've seen in the book of Hebrews, as our great high priest, he has endured everything that his people will ever endure. More than they have ever endured, because he endured the cross. And so our trials are nothing compared to his. They are painful, but he gives them with emotional involvement and care. Abraham could have done one of two things. He could have said, no way, no way. God, you promised me this, and I am not going to give this up. That's why it was called a test. He was tested. There was a couple options he could have done. He could have said, no way. There is no human way to rectify this situation. I can't do it. I can't do it. I don't see any possible end to this. 
he could have assumed that God was a liar, since his human mind couldn't comprehend this. God, you gave me this promise and now you're taking it back? You are a liar. But Abraham is humbled, and Abraham does what is right. Abraham does not call God a liar. Abraham does not refuse to obey because he doesn't see the end of it. What, what was his secret? He considered that God is able. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Remember, Isaac came from a dead womb. So why couldn't God raise Isaac from those ashes? From whom, from which he also received him back as a type. So Abraham did what was right and he let God take care of the rest. And in fact, he found that God did not lie. God was faithful and God made a way. But Abraham's part was to obey, not to figure all this out. Faith is radical, but it is always worth it because God is true. Question, did not God's promise still come true? It absolutely did. Israel still exists. Isaac's descendants still prospered because Abraham endured the trial. He endured the trial and the blessing still came. Faith responds to a call from God. It doesn't respond by figuring everything out. But it realizes that just as God raised his son from the dead, that kind of life out of death power still resides in our God. And so even if we do not see his promises in full, we know that God is faithful and he has all power to fulfill his promise in the way he chooses, even if that be through something so solemn as death. So what should we make of this idea from which he received him back as a type. Abraham really did offer Isaac. You remember in Genesis 22 that Isaac didn't die, but Abraham did offer him. In other words, Abraham's hand never plunged the knife into Isaac's heart. But Abraham's heart did plunge the knife because he even went to that mountain out of obedience unto God. So in one sense, Isaac was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead as an illustration of what God can do. And so Abraham foreshadowed the resurrection of Christ himself. Interesting little note. Genesis 22 shows us how Isaac was offered on that altar in Abraham's heart. Um, but we never read of Isaac coming down from the mountain. You just don't read of it in Genesis. Obviously he did, but we don't read of it. Where do we see Isaac next? Well, we see that Isaac is meditating in a field in Genesis 24. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for his bride. Sarah has been set aside because she died. Sarah dies in chapter 23, and that's a picture of Israel being set aside. But what do we find in chapter 24? That Isaac, after he was quote-unquote raised from the dead is waiting for his bride to be brought back to him by the servant of his father. So that's just an illustration of how Christ died, rose again, and ascended, and is waiting for the church to be received unto himself. In chapter 22, we have an illustration of the father giving his son. Because Isaac didn't come down from that mountain, but was rather raised, it's as if we are seeing an illustration of Christ's ascension into heaven. We don't see him coming back yet. And then in chapter 23, we see that Sarah dies. The father's wife dies. Remember, Israel was pictured as the wife of Yahweh in the Old Testament. So she is set aside as it were. And then in chapter 24, 
after Israel is set aside, we have the Holy Spirit, the servant of the Father, illustrated in Abraham and his servant, going out to find a bride for Isaac, representing Christ, and we are that bride in the New Testament dispensation after Israel was set aside. So Israel set aside, Holy Spirit comes to bring out a people for Christ's name, and so we next see Isaac waiting for a bride, because he was raised from the dead and ascended, as it were. He never came down from the mountain, but he's waiting for a bride even though the bride has never seen him. That's an illustration of what Peter says, that we have not seen Christ, but we love him. And so this illustration is a powerful illustration in Isaac's life of how Christ died, rose again, ascended, Israel set aside, and the church is being brought unto him. What do we read after Rebekah is brought to Isaac? It says he went into his mother's tent. It says that after three years of Sarah being dead, He was able to be comforted after his mother's death. So there finally Israel is taken up again only after, only after the church is brought unto Christ and is received into his heart. So there's a powerful illustration here. There's a lot more nuances to this, but that's just to give you a taste of what exists in the book of Genesis. Christ died. Christ rose again. Christ ascended. Christ has a bride. And only after his bride is complete will he take up his purposes again with Israel. And there we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working to bring a bride out for Christ in Genesis chapter 24. So what about this last element of faith? So we've been done with Abraham now. We've put him aside in the narrative. And we come to Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Faith prepares for the future expecting unseen fulfillment. It expects what it expects. It sees something in the future, it lives in light of it, it talks in light of it, and it continues in light of it. So what are we seeing here? By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel, and gave orders concerning his bones. So what about Isaac, first of all? Isaac blessed Jacob regarding things to come. So he did not see the blessing fulfilled, yet so powerful was the blessing in his mind that it was basically a prophecy. So he expected God to act, and so he blessed his sons in light of it. That's what faith does. Faith sees the promises of God, and it blesses people, it acts as if those promises had already been fulfilled. Everything hangs on the future. Think about this. How much was Isaac's reputation hanging on his blessing his sons? If those blessings didn't come true, Isaac would have been kind of labeled as a, you know, well, we don't know what he would have been, at least a heathen, certainly not somebody who bore the very covenant of God. So Isaac's entire lineage and reputation was resting on something he never saw, and yet he blessed his sons in light of that. So he was basing everything he was. He was basing his entire future, his entire line, based on the promise of God. So similar with Jacob, he blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshipped, ah, there's a key, They understood who God was, and so it was no problem for them to base their entire being on God's future promises, because they believed him, and that was good enough. If the future didn't come to pass, their blessing would have been in vain. 
but they so believed in the revelation of God that they could hang their all on something they had never seen. That's what faith does. It worships in the meantime, but it acts based on what it has never seen. And similar with Joseph, just as we saw with Jacob, similar with Joseph, when he was dying, anything he had was the future. Anything he had was based on the promises of God. He had nothing else. He was dying. The world was leaving him. But he could say confidently that he wanted his bones taken up in the Exodus to Israel so that they could be properly buried with his people. So these people based everything on what they had never seen. Couple notes. What did you, what was unique about Jacob's blessing the sons of Joseph? Well, you remember that he did not bless the firstborn first, but he blessed the second one. So Jacob subtly switched his hands so that it was the younger one who was blessed first. And Joseph didn't get what Jacob was doing when he did this. But because Jacob was a prophet, because he worshipped God, he was actually showing that he was acting not according to man's wisdom, but God's wisdom. He was blessing according to what would be God's standards, not man's standards. So Ephraim and Manasseh, these sons, were blessed in the opposite order. It could only be attributed to the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of men. So that's what faith does. It doesn't act according to human standards. What about Joseph? Notice this. Joseph found his place in the promised land, even though he was a man of Egypt for all those years. He knew his true place was among the people of God, even after he died. Even though his life was in Egypt, his legacy was in Israel. That should be our case as we live a life of faith. God doesn't call us to reject a job in a secular atmosphere. He doesn't call us to not invest in this world at all. We're supposed to be good members of our community. But what about our legacy? We should invest in our community and in our civilization as good members of it. But if we live a life of faith, we will aim for our legacy to be timeless and to be among the people of God, not the world. So that even though we occupy a place in this world in our lives, even though we occupy a place perhaps in some form of quote-unquote secular employment, even though we have that place, that is not where our legacy lies. That is not where our primary impact lies. We are people who serve God among his people, and we want our legacy to be known among the people of God even after we die. So that's just something to see of what faith does. It invests in a legacy among the people of God beyond what this world can understand. Remember, even after all the service Joseph gave Israel, there rose up another Pharaoh which knew not Joseph. This world is going to forget us. Let's let's just, they're going to take us for everything we are and drop us like a used tissue at the end of our life. They don't really care. As long as they get their money's worth out of us, that's the way secular employment works. That's a lame goal in life, to have a career, if that's our goal. What we need is to use that career for the glory of God, to serve him day by day, so that we can make an impact among God's people for a heavenly calling, and to work in evangelism, to work so as to build up the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of men. That's where our legacy must lie. And so we come to a conclusion. Let's just recap really, really quickly so we understand what faith does. Number one, faith obeyed a call. Faith is obedient. 
So I ask the question, do I rest on the details of God's will for my life, or am I content to obey when I don't see the outcome? Do I rest on the details of God's will for my life, or am I content to obey even when I don't see the outcome? It's a serious question. It's a very, very serious question, and we have to be willing to answer that in our lives, and we will be challenged on it. Secondly, faith trusted in a promise for something that was entirely unlikely. Entirely unlikely. Just like the land was unknown, so the son, Isaac, was totally unlikely. The question I ask myself is this. Do I rest on reason or revelation? Do I rest on what makes sense to me or on what God promises me? This is a question of whether the word of God is sufficient for us or if things need to make sense. Is God's promise enough? Do I rest on reason or revelation? The third thing we saw about faith is that it had a proper desire. It desired a country, so much so that the heavenly country caught their eye so much that they just forgot about the hope that was left unfulfilled in the meantime on earth. So even though their hope on earth was unfulfilled, They desired something that was heavenly and unshakable. So do I find my all in God and in a heavenly inheritance? Do I find my all in God and in a heavenly inheritance? That's unshakable. That's the best thing to invest in. And that's what faith does. The fourth thing that faith does, as illustrated in Abraham, is it endured the trial. Is my commitment to God the type to last through trials? That's a serious, serious question. And I have no doubt in my mind that the only thing that drove Abraham to offer his son was sheer willpower, knowing that it was right. Do we respond to what we know is right, regardless of how we feel? That's a tough question. It's a tough question. Do we respond to what we know is right because God said it, even when it will hurt. Let me say something very tenderly and carefully, but it needs to be said. Our obedience does not decrease in a trial. It may take a different form. We might not be able to be as active for God in the peripheral things of life, but as to a life of righteousness, there is never a time when wickedness is justified. Our mouths Our minds, our eyes, our associations, there is never a time when we can compromise those even though our emotional guards may be down during those times. It takes sheer willpower to do what is right, to endure the trial by unrestrained commitment, by something we do because we want God, because we want to find our all in God, just as we saw with the last point. And so obedience is absolutely committed. It is unrestrained. It does what is right because it believes God will come through in the end. Then we come to this final point, that faith prepares for the future, even though it doesn't see what the future will hold. The future is so real to it that it acts as if it already came. Do I live my life so assured in God's future promises and base everything I am on those promises? That's a serious question. Am I so confident in God 
that I can risk everything. And risk is an unhelpful word because it implies that it is risky. But faith doesn't see it as a risk. Faith just sees it as something that must be done because God will come through in the end. But am I willing to risk everything for something I have never seen so that I can place my full confidence in God? Am I allowing myself, do I allow myself, do I push myself to make my entire life about what I have never seen yet know for sure to be true in God? Faith has no insurance policies. Let's get that straight. Faith has no insurance policies. Faith prepares for the future. It acts because it sees the truth of God. So we found that we need to get our desire straight. We have found that we need to get our outlook on the future straight. We found that we need to obey. We need to trust. We need to desire. We need to endure. And we need to prepare for the future. Everything we are and do needs to be in light of a lasting legacy among God's people, something that will please him for eternity. Well, that's all for today. If you would like more resources like this, visit us on christianteaching.org. Don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter and check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes as well. Until next time, I'm your host, Micah Hackett. God bless. God bless.